In 70 AD, the newly crowned Roman emperor made his march back into the capital city. He had just quelled a Jewish revolt that began in 66 AD and lasted for four years and ended with the devastating destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. And as he makes his march back to the capital city, there's a word that's used to describe the coming of an emperor to his city. And the word that's used is a Greek word, parousia. If you've grown up in church, you might have heard the term parousia. But it's a technical term, a specific word that is used for the return or the coming of a king, a leader, or dignitary. Oftentimes, and most oftentimes, used when this king or leader or dignitary has been victorious in either political or military victory. So, this newly crowned emperor, this, uh, Vespasian, is making his way back to the capital city for his Perusia, his coming. And as he does this, there's another technical term that's used. The people go out to meet him, eight epistasin. And the reason why it's a technical term is because the civilians going out to meet the coming king, they're not just meeting some ordinary individual, they're meeting Caesar, they're meeting the king. So this word is a specific type of meeting, a meeting that's used between a civilian and like the king or a leader or a champion. And so you have to picture in your head a returning king, a victorious king, a champion, and he's returning to his capital city. And it's called the Perusia because it's a specific time where the people in the city, they don't just sit there and wait for the king to return. They get excited. The king's coming. He's on his way. And if you're excited and you want the king to come, you don't just sit there and stay put. You go out to meet the king and sing and dance and, and splash trumpets and you usher the king in as royalty into your city. So hold this image in your head. There's a king off in the distance and people for maybe a mile, sometimes two miles, three miles, go out to meet the king, the newly crowned champion and they usher in the royal figure back into the city. Now again, as they're doing this, they're praising, they're chanting, Caesar, you are savior of the world. You brought peace to the Roman Empire. There's massive trumpets blasting. Romans love their trumpets. When Claudius died, a previous emperor, it was said that the trumpets in Rome were so loud that they woke up the dead. So you have trumpets, you have song, you have dance, you have the civilians meeting the king miles ahead of time and bringing him in as royalty with song and dance into the city. This is the coming of a king and you go out to meet him. We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians and Paul in this section is going to write words of encouragement, specifically words of encouragement to a group of people in the city of Thessalonica who are experiencing persecution and suffering. And the words of encouragement will have everything to do with death. And there's a reason for this. If you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus is going to return again and it's now been a couple decades since Jesus has died and resurrected and he's still not returned, what hope do you have when it seems like he might be delaying or forgetting about this second coming issue? More importantly, what happens to those people who have already died? Maybe some by natural causes, but what happens to those Christians who two decades after the life and death of Jesus have died horrifically as martyrs? Do they have hope? What happened to them? 
where will they be at the second coming? Or the opposite of it. What about for those of us who stay alive? Should we try and stay alive for the second coming? What happens if we're alive when he comes back? What happens to those who are dead? What hope do we have? So Paul is going to write words of encouragement to a persecuted people all relating around the issue of death. Now another fair warning, this passage is one of the most misused and abused or taken the wrong way passages in the entire New Testament. And for those of you who are going to recognize it and are kind of into studying the, what Christians call the end times, the theological word for that is eschatology or end times eschatology, you're gonna recognize this verse because it's always quoted. And particularly this verse is quoted when people are debating about precise chronology of the end times. And so that's, that's fun and there's a reason and study for end times and eschatology, but I'll, I'll say this. This verse was not written to create end time speculation or precise chronology about the second coming of Jesus. This verse was written to a group of people in Thessalonica who were suffering persecution and they had fear and anxiety and they were wondering about what happens to those of us who have died and for those of us who are living and for those of us who are suffering. And so Paul writes these encouraging words of hope. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So first off, the establishment. Don't be uninformed. You are to grieve, but you don't grieve as others who have no hope. So what's he talking about? In the first century Greco-Roman world, the vast majority of people had a very bleak understanding of the afterlife. If you were your normal kind of Greco-Roman pagan and you believed in multiple gods, there wasn't hope of the afterlife. The afterlife was a sort of subhuman, borderline, subconscious, um, basic existence in the belly of the underworld. It wasn't something you looked forward to. And so when you look at all the ancient documents relating to advice on the afterlife, you're not going to read like people saying, you know, it's okay that someone's dead, they're in a better place now. Like that's, that's an American thing. Not, you don't have to be Christian. Like people just say that. Like probably 95% of people in America encourage each other. Someone's in a better place now. In this context, most people believe the afterlife wasn't that great. In fact, most people thought it was pretty bad. So the advice you read in the ancient documents is like, don't grieve the death of your mother. It doesn't do any good. It's pragmatic. It doesn't solve anything. She's dead. Nothing you could do about it. Um, don't, worry about, you know, don't worry about the dead. It's not going to do anybody good. But Paul writes, in that world, yes, you grieve when a Christian dies, but you don't grieve as others because you have a hope. And the idea of the second coming and this afterlife was, was radically at odds with the current understanding of the afterlife. The, the euphemism asleep just is a word that means dead. Um, it's a metaphor. It's just saying what, what's going on with the people of, uh, that, who are dead. In verse 14, Paul begins to break, break it down. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
So first, first clue. When Jesus returns, he is going to bring with him those who have already died. So you don't have to worry about your friend or your loved one who maybe died of natural causes or even worse, suffered a horrific death for Jesus. Don't worry about them. They'll be with Jesus. He goes on. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is another way of saying the same thing. We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ first, and then we who are living at the second coming of Jesus will also join them. Now this is where it gets super interesting and extremely complicated. Paul, in just a few verses, is going to attempt to describe what the second coming and the renewal of all things will ultimately look like. He's going to do it in a few verses. But he has to use imagery, story, metaphor in order to describe it. Because it's, it's so heavy. And that's the way everything works in life. Anything that's heavy, you have to use metaphor to communicate. I mean, uh, Oh, say you're at a wedding and you're watching a groom speak love into his, his wife, you know, exchanging of vows or something. The only language that can suffice to communicate the love that that man has is metaphor and imagery. He can't use precise language. So you don't say, well, you know, on this day I de- declare to you that, you know, on the chemical level, there's, there's been a release from my brain and it's created a bond, a social bond between us. And um, we've brought witnesses before us to declare that this social bond will, you know, will, will hold until our bodies begin to decompose on the cellular level. <laughs> you just don't do that. I mean, think about just, I love you with all of my heart. That's imagery, that's metaphor. Like you don't mean it literally. You mean like, all of my heart. It's like, it's gross. So Paul is going to use images and pictures from different sources to paint a composite picture of a reality that human language fails to articulate. And this is how he describes it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I've underlined some of the themes and, and, and images, and we're going to look at that in a second. But first, understand the magnitude of the task. Imagine if you were born blind and someone was trying to communicate to you what color looked like. Think about it. You've been born blind, you've never seen any color, and someone has to try and accomplish communicating what colors actually look like. And people do work on this, they try, and people have made efforts, and you know, you you might try... Okay, I, I'm going to think of a parallel thing that you do understand. So you know the sensation of touch. So I'm going to put a hot rock into your hand. And, and when you feel heat, think red. Now, what you feel on your hand, warmth, I have a different sense 
that sees something in a similar sense to the way you feel something. And you put an ice in the hand, and this is blue. But what you're doing is you're trying to create a parallel experience from different senses. But it still will ultimately fail. Still will ultimately fail. So Paul is communicating about a reality, the second coming of Christ and the renewal of all things, the new creation, new heavens, new earth, and he's gonna try to slam it all together using the images of his Greco-Roman world as well as his Jewish world. Here's underlining just some key themes and concepts that, that will come to the surface in a moment. But he says that the Lord, Jesus, is going to descend from where? Heaven. And he's going to, in this descent, there's going to be loud noise, a cry of command. There's going to be voice of an archangel. And there's going to be specifically a sound of a trumpet. And when he comes down, he's going to come in the clouds. And he's going to meet, we are going to meet him. If you take those things I've underlined and some of the various themes in that verse, three things will begin to surface, at least three. And these three kind of scenes or events or images will properly paint the picture that Paul is trying to describe. First off, what I hinted at when we started, there's a technical term, perusia, perusia, means coming. And there's a technical term, ace epitacine, to meet. And those were used in the Roman world to describe the coming of a king, a leader, or a dignitary after a great victory as he makes his way into the city. This is his parousia, his coming. And when the king parousias, he comes, you go out to ace epistacine, meet him. Because this isn't a normal meeting. This is the meeting between civilians and a king or a leader. And you usher in the king as your royalty into your city. What Paul is doing is taking a very common image. And how do we know that? Because in this text, he uses those two technical terms, parousia and asepistasi. This is how he's describing the return of Jesus. So in your mind, if you're a reader of this for the first time in the first century world, especially in a city like Thessalonica, you have an image of Caesar coming into the, to the city with blasts of trumpets and songs and dance and people greeting him as the new king. What Paul has done is he's replaced Caesar and a Roman highway into the city with Jesus coming in the clouds, not to just a mere city, but to earth, to claim what is rightfully his and to be ushered in as the true king. So there's that image of Caesar, and Paul is laying a parallel image and saying, oh yeah, Jesus does that, but just in this greater sense. So there's this idea of the coming in the technical sense, the coming of the king to his city with his justice, his might, and his recompense with him. The second image is that of trumpets. Now, like I said, the, uh, the Romans loved trumpets, and when Claudius died, they said the trumpets were so loud it woke the dead. There's another group of people who also love trumpets, and they are the Jewish people. And so Paul is a Greco-Roman person, but he's also, first and foremost, a Jewish thinker, saturated in the Jewish Old Testament. Bible trivia time. If someone gets this, I told first service uh, that Greg Whitaker will, will give them a $100 gift card. If you can get, this is deep Bible trivia, deep level Bible trivia, next level. Is there... Another place in the Old Testament 
where there is a leader or a king or the Lord maybe who descends from a high place in the clouds and he descends to meet with his people. Think about a formative event. Okay, Greg gets to keep some of his money. Anyone want to be brave? One guess. You got one? Moses? Yeah. 100 bucks, Greg. Okay. So when, when God forms the people of Israel, he brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus event, and he takes them into the wilderness, and specifically this holy mountain called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, God is about to give people the Torah, his law. And in specifically in chapter 20, he's about to give them the Ten Commandments. So right as God is forming this new nation, and he's about to give them Torah and law and covenant and community and the way to live in their mission and purpose in the world, God descends from the mountain. Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large, tr large, loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So I've underlined some of the key concepts. There's a thick cloud. There's loud trumpets blast. God is bringing out the people to meet with them and he's descending upon them. This isn't just some random Bible verse. This is like ingrained in the Jewish thinker's mind. This is the formation of the covenant people of Israel. They're about to get law and the Ten Commandments. So what is Paul doing? He's doing the exact same thing he did with the Greco-Roman image. He's overlaying what Jesus is going to do at the second coming at the end with the beginning of how God begun to form his people and give them law. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh descends from the clouds to meet with his people at the sound of a trumpet. And in the New Testament, you have Jesus descending from heaven in the clouds to meet his people with the sound of trumpets. Now you need to know, because this isn't the way we do theology, but this is the way Jewish thinkers do theology in the first century. We're modern people, so if we were to do like theology, we were to write about like, we would write a systematic theology book and the theology book would have 10 chapters and each one of those chapters would have three key points and each one of those three key points would have five subpoints: A, B, C, D, E, F, A, B, C, D, E. There we go. It's very linear. It's very organized. There's clear cut categories. That sort of systematic theology didn't, didn't really exist in the ancient Jewish world. The way they, they did theology, the way they did Bible, was story, metaphor, and images. So if you were to ask a modern preacher, like, can you outline or give to me your understanding of the love of God? And, like, if you were to talk with like an expert theologian, they would begin with like, the ontology of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal relationship and love for one, I mean, that's just what we do. If you ask Jesus, when he was here 2,000 years ago, hey, talk, talk to me about the love of God, he would go, oh, so, so let me tell you a quick story. There's this dad, and he has two sons, 
One of them always does what's right, and one of the sons is always on, he's kind of like the outcast, and he asks his dad for his inheritance early. And he goes out and just spends all the money, and he ends up broke in poverty, eating among pigs. And then the story would end with the love of the father. That's sort of like what the, the love of God's like. It's, it's really different. And so Paul's doing what Jewish thinkers of his day do. He's taking Old Testament imagery, again, and overlaying it upon something new. But he's also doing that with Greco-Roman imagery. Now, there's another layer. This issue of clouds. What's up with clouds? Because most people, when they, rele- they read like Jesus is coming in the clouds, I mean, just by default, we sort of think like, straight literally, like he's going to come and he's, you know, even the way he's depicted, you know, the pictures of Jesus, like it's Jesus and he's like kind of floating down and there's, there's clouds around him. And, and that's the image that should come to your mind, but clouds don't mean clouds for a Jewish first century thinker. There's something called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is extremely common in the first century world, in the first century Jewish world. And apocalyptic literature is just a genre of literature. So think, think movies, think there's science fiction movies, there's fantasy movies, and each genre has its own sort of internal rules and internal logic. So like you kind of know what type of movie you're going to see if you're gonna see a science fiction movie. Like there's people here, you hate and despise science fiction movies. This is lame to you, you know? I, I, I don't know why you're like that. I mean, we're all fallen and have different issues, but... Um, <laughs> A Western has specific rules, right? How does a Western end? The good guy does what? He, he walks off into the sunset. Now, he might have got the girl earlier, but he doesn't walk off to, with a, a Western. He walks off alone. That's the rule of a Western. Even if there was a romantic interest for the whole movie, in the, he walks off by himself. He's, he's too hard and too condemned to loneliness to ever settle down. <laughs> that's, that's the internal logic of the genre. Think about a romantic comedy. There's internal logic to that. If you're watching a romantic comedy, there is grace and forgiveness in Jesus. Um, <laughs> no, if you're watching a romantic comedy and like, At the beginning of the movie, there's this shy and awkward guy. And you know, because the clues of the movie, of the genre, he likes the pretty girl. And the shy and awkward guy never has a chance at landing the pretty girl, but it's a romantic comedy, so you're gonna watch an hour and a half how the shy, awkward guy lands the pretty girl, okay? But let's say at the beginning of the movie, like, to try and impress the girl, because she always talked about how she wanted a puppy, he gives her a puppy. Flash forward, in the rules of romantic comedy, At the end of that movie, you are most likely going to see it flash forward like two years after their first kiss, and then they're married, and they have a kid, and guess who's licking the little kid on the face? The puppy's, Skippy's all grown now. And then like, it's romantic comedy, so what does Skippy do? He pees on the carpet, and it's like, oh, part two's gonna have kids and a crazy dog. Like, that's the rules of the romantic comedy movie. When you're watching a romantic comedy, you don't expect shy, awkward guy to give puppy to girl, and at the end of the movie, right before he 
is going to kiss the girl on a romantic kind of streetlight scene. Here comes Skippy running. Boom, and the car hits the dog, and he's dead. And he's just flopping with the last life, and they got to decide, do we put him down or take him to the hospital? Like, it wouldn't happen. That's, that's not romantic comedy. There's internal rules for the genre. Apocalyptic literature is no different, and it has themes and rules, and things function in a certain manner. So in apocalyptic literature, you have epic, ultimate, oftentimes violent and gory, heavenly imagery used to describe concrete present reality. And so in apocalyptic literature, you will have something like this. And then five monsters came, and the monsters came from the sky, and they caused fear to arise in all the hearts of men. Apocalyptic literature always has monsters or beasts. And so apocalyptic literature, you'll have a beast rising from the sea, and he has seven heads, and each one of those seven heads has 42 teeth, and he was given power and authority to cause harm on God's people for 32 days. That's how it works. Apocalyptic literature uses intense epic imagery to describe concrete present reality. And so there's always monsters, and there's beasts, and they come out of the sea, and, and, and they specifically are there to uh, blaspheme. Blaspheme is like a, a way of slandering God, so they blaspheme God, they slander God, and slander his people. This is the rules of apocalyptic literature. There's monsters and there's beast. And the way the beast works is it functions sort of as a, a mouthpiece of Satan. It's a mouthpiece of Satan. Um, it's a spokesperson, if you will. So the, the beast will often be depicted as like having a giant mouth and there's, again, saying slanderous and blasphemous things about God and his people. Now, hold that. In apocalyptic literature, clouds have a specific meaning again and again and again and again. When someone comes in the clouds, that person is usually the king or a messiah figure or a leader who is going to or who has just slayed the beast or the monsters. So when you read an apocalyptic literature and oh my gosh, there's a beast with seven heads and there's a dragon who's breathing fire and all of a sudden, then there's one who comes in the clouds. Coming in the clouds is the imagery that means the king is coming with power, might, and judgment to kill the beast. And once he kills the beast, then you bring him in as your royal victor. In Daniel chapter seven, um, there's a description of this sort of apocalyptic literature. By the way, when I'm talking about beasts coming out of the sea and monsters with four heads, if you've been a Christian a long time, what does that sound like? Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a common genre in the first century. And you'll never understand how to read Revelation unless you understand the genre. The vast majority of trouble we get in reading the book of Revelation is because we read it without understanding the genre. It's like thinking a romantic comedy is science fiction. You're just not going to understand it. 
In Daniel chapter 7, in a portion that is apocalyptic literature, there is one who is described who has just slain the beast of Daniel's day, the monsters. And Daniel has a vision of this character, and this is what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he's slain the beast, and he's coming in the clouds, and what happens next? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, Daniel says there's someone coming and he's coming in the clouds. He's defeated the monsters and the beast and to him, he will be given a kingdom that isn't just Israel, but it's a kingdom of the whole world and it's not just a kingdom that lasts his lifetime. It's an everlasting kingdom. But he's given all that precisely because he is the worthy and rightful king who has slayed the monster, who has slayed the beast. He's destroyed the dragon. This is how the genre works. Now back to the beast. This is where it becomes extremely relevant for the book of 1 Thessalonians and then it gets extremely relevant for us. The beast, the monsters, again, are the mouthpiece. They are the mouth of Satan. So Satan is the spiritual entity and picture this. Picture like we're watching a, a fantasy movie. There is this evil spiritual being um, and he has a physical embodiment. There's a monster that embodies him physically. And the monster is this grotesque, evil, vile looking thing. And the monster goes about persecuting God's people. But in addition to that, he slanders God and his people and he mocks them in their suffering. Now the beast, the monsters, usually, if not always, correspond to evil empires and evil kings and evil dictators. So in Daniel's day, he was talking about beast and monsters that corresponded to different empires, Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, Greek. But make no mistake about it, apocalyptic literature just describes evil empires and kings as beasts and monsters. Now the beast mocks God's people in their suffering. You say, how does that work? Picture Jesus on the cross. Jesus is in immense suffering, dying the most agonizing death imaginable, and what are the people doing? If, if you really are God's son, you take yourself off that cross. If you are whom you say you are, if, you are God, if God loves you, if you belong to him, you are who you say you are, come down and remove yourself from that cross right now. And for the Thessalonians, they know exactly what that's like. Picture if you're a new Christian and you're being tied to a stake to be burned to death alive. You're not just suffering. It's not like people encourage you in your suffering, like, hey, this will all be over shortly. Just stick it out. No, no. You know, what are they doing to you? They're mocking you. Before you go to burn to death, they're going to tell you things like, where's your God now? If God is good, then he'll stop me. Or picture some of the first Christians nailed to Roman crosses. You still think God is good? Where is he? Where is he? And so the beast not only persecute God's people, they mock them in their suffering. Where is your God now? 
the mouthpiece of Satan. In Revelations 13, 5, 6, here's an example of what I mean. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It's opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Now, I'm gonna do something I rarely do. I'm finally gonna show a clip from Lord of the Rings. And I, and I never do this because Lord of the Rings is the greatest cinematic masterpiece ever, ever put forth by image bearers. And um, this is a deleted scene from the extended edition. So Return of the King was already about seven and a half hours in length. And then the extended edition ran about 15 and a, two, two, three quarters um, in length. It was a very long movie, Return of the King. This is a scene that was deleted. But you have to, you know, once you buy the movie and then like, Two months later, the, the extended Blu-ray comes out, and for like five minutes more footage, you pay 20 bucks again. This, this was the thing. This scene is cut. And I get why it's cut. It's almost too vile for the movie. And there's no violence in here or anything. It's not going to be graphic or anything. But if you have a small kid, the imagery is grotesque. In this scene, a, a character who is cut from the movie is presented. And the character is called the Mouth of Sauron. And Sauron, think, is, is, remember, he's the eye on top of the tower. He's the spiritual being that's causing all the evil in the world. But he has to have this sort of physical embodiment. And who is his spokesperson? Who is his mouthpiece? It's the mouth of Sauron. And what does the mouth of Sauron do? He comes and speaks on behalf of the evil one, and he not only persecutes the good guys, he mocks them to their face. And they did a brilliant job. This creature, the mouth of Sauron, is hideous. He is disgusting. This is like, you just want nothing but for someone to kill, kill this. It's like, gross. This is exactly what apocalyptic literature wants you to do. Everyone reads Revelation, and, and, and they're, they're not thinking. No, of course this is an evil monster coming out of the sea with seven heads. It's a vile and grotesque embodiment of not only the evil one, but the evil empire and the evil kings, dictators, and oppressors who wreak havoc on God's good creation. Perfect picture of the beast, not coming out of the sea, but out of the black gates. Oh, so remember how we had that audio problem with that video? I was warned that we'd have a 50% chance. Okay, we're going to try it one more thing. Do that, do, do that thing and close it real quick and relaunch it. Try to get it going. And if not, we're just going to play. I just want you to get a picture of this dude. Let it play, and then we'll pause it right on his nasty face. All right, here it comes. No audio. I just want you to see this dude's face. Dun, 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 dun. Oh! What? Let the Lord of the Black Land come forth. Turn it up a little bit more. I gotta bump this scene. There we go. 
there any in this realm with authority to treat with me? We do not come to treat with Sauron, faithless and accursed. Tell your master this. The armies of Mordor must disband. He is to depart these lands, never to return. Oh, old Greyfield. I am a token I was bidden to show thee. That's why I don't show clips from that, because you just want to watch the rest. <laughs> want to listen to the rest of this sermon? I don't want to listen to the rest of this sermon. There's only a few minutes left. We could probably just finish the movie. I mean, it's that good. No, this perfectly illustrates what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. Did you feel that? I mean, you feel it. It's a hideous creature, not from the waters, but from the black gates. And he represents, he is the mouthpiece, the spokesperson of the Satan figure. And he mocks you to your face and mocks you in your suffering. So what is Paul doing? Paul, in just a few verses, is layering Greco-Roman imagery, Jewish Old Testament imagery, and apocalyptic literature, and he's weaving it all together because he can't spell it out because English words and Greek words and Hebrew words fail in their sufficiency to communicate this grand idea. And so there's layers of images. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the point of this passage. Encourage each other with these words. Not to add to end-time speculation, but to give concrete hope and the certainty of the Christian hope in the return of Jesus. Paul says, yes, grieve. Grieve, because there's things to grieve. There is suffering in this world, but you don't grieve like the rest of the world because you have a hope. So you grieve differently. There is a hope of not only an afterlife, but there is a hope that the good king will come back to his people and we will meet him and he will slay the beast and the dragons and the monsters and he will do it finally and climactically and he will usher in his peace and new creation. And the beasts just aren't in the book of Daniel or in Thessalonica or in Rome. The beast and the evil empires are still at work in the world today. You better believe North Korea has a beast coming out of the sea. You're a Christian there, you suffer and you die. 
So why is this hope, though, so radical and transformative in its context? It's not, for one, everyone just believed in this kind of subhuman kind of existence in the belly of the underworld, and so Christians gave hope to an afterlife. But more importantly, the teaching of the resurrection and second coming of Jesus was a direct threat to the beast, to the empire, to Rome. Why? Because all evil empires and dictators work the same. If you challenge them, you die. The greatest tool in the weapon of oppression for the evil empires is always torture and death. So let's say I'm a Thessalonican Christian, Thessalonian Christian, and I have to choose between doing the right thing and the wrong thing. But I believe there's, you know, what if I don't believe there's any real afterlife and there's really no God that truly loves me personally and, and, and wants to save me? There's just random gods who are probably immor- more immoral than I am. And I'm presented a decision, right or wrong. And I know I got kids and people to feed. What am I going to do? I'm going to bow the knee to Caesar and say, yes, Lord. Because there's the pain of death, right? So the empire has this tool, bow or die, bow or be crucified. What does the first teachings of the first Christians do? It removes the sting and power of death. It says, yes, we grieve, and yes, there's real suffering, but you can torture us and you can kill us, but we will turn and look death in the eye and say, where, oh, where is your sting? And so empires feared the Christian movement because they couldn't use the same tools of oppression. Why? Because the first Christians in this early movement said this, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So death, you can do your worst, but I am in Christ and he in me, and he will raise me up on his final day of judgment, and I will meet with him, and I will be with him forever. You gotta understand, that's crazy. You ever wonder, look at, look at evil empires and who they, they persecute. Look what's going on in North Korea, look what's going on in Iran. It's not just the Roman world, it's not just Daniel's day. Christianity is always a threat because it says the greatest tool of the oppressor can't totally defeat us. And more importantly, our movement began with the empire crucifying our king. Think about that radical claim. The movement begins with the crucifixion of its leader. Oh yeah, he came back. Came back three days later. And he's gonna come back again. And when he comes, he's gonna come in the clouds. And if you know what that means, that's reason to be excited because he's coming to defeat the beast, evil, injustice, tyranny, oppression. And when the king comes, death will be swallowed up. There'll be no more hunger, no more famine, no more pain. And Rome claimed to bring peace and security to the entire Roman Empire, but they did it by the sword. But this king does it by dying on a cross for his enemies. So we have a hope that is radically and fundamentally different than anything else. And so this is where it gets practical. We're not being persecuted. No one in this room is like, we're not being like, no one's saying denounce Jesus or die. but there's very real pain and suffering in this room. And as a pastor, I know this because I tell you, there is not a week, there is not a week that goes by at this church where I am not told some horrific story of pain and suffering. 
whether it's the brokenness of a marriage, whether it's death, whether it's news of cancer, whether it's a child who's suffering, every single week there is devastating news. And if you turn on the news, there is devastating news, so much pain and suffering. And so although we're not being persecuted, we have a different hope. It says something, it means something. We're not like the, the, the pagan Gentiles of first century Rome who thought the gods didn't care. We have a God who in the midst of our pain and suffering, he knows our name and he knows every hair on your head. He knows exactly your, your current condition. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He knows the cancer. Whatever it may be today, he knows it. And he loved you enough to die on a Roman cross to not only forgive you but to know you and to bring you into his family. And he's sovereign. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And despite our present circumstances, we cling to the hope that he will return again and he will slay all monsters, all beasts, all dragons. And so today, earlier we took communion. And there is a reason for that. Because communion is doing, on a practical level, everything this passage is trying to teach us. Communion says, you look to the past. You look to the past where Jesus was killed, crucified, and resurrected. And you firmly plant your feet in that foundation. You say, I stand on Christ crucified for me personally. And we fix our eyes to the future the second coming, Paul the Apostle says, you do the communion thing until Jesus returns again. So you see how this is working. You ground yourself in a past reality with a hope that's based on the future, the second coming of Jesus, and then you in the present pledge your allegiance to King Jesus daily and weekly. Crucifixion on one side, second coming on the other, pledging allegiance to Jesus in the center. And that's why we had you for communion. I wanted you to stand up. I wanted you to physically walk up to that. You know, at schools, they, um, depending on which school, I, I've heard different things, but when I was uh, in school, you, you pledged allegiance to the flag every single morning. And it was a way to like reaffirm your allegiance to, to your country on a daily basis. Well, that's an earthly kingdom. How much more for a Christian how much more do we need to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus on a regular basis? That's what communion does, is it represents the body of our king, the blood of our king, the past and the presence and our present allegiance to him. So as we close, I want to tie all of this together. I know the suffering, I know the pain that's in this room. I want you to think of your biggest problem right now. And for some of you, you're at a good time in life. You don't have many big problems. I want you to think of your biggest problem in life. I want you in your heart to say, God, help me to trust you with this. It's bigger than me. It's overwhelming. It's like a, a monster coming out of the sea, attacking me. I can't, I can't slay it. I can't kill it. I can't do anything to stop it but I know you're good and I know you're strong and I know that in my weakness I can be made strong. Help me to give this to you. Help me to trust you with it. You are my king. You are my Lord. You are my savior and I love you and I trust you. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. 
whatever it is, take it to him. And know whether you get an answer today, a month, a year, or never in your lifetime, an answer will be given to all suffering and all evil when Jesus comes in the clouds in power and glory, bringing his justice and recompense with him to slay every last monster that's ever opposed him or his people. And because of that, we walk with faithfulness in the presence, knowing the past and the future. Let me pray. And as we pray, you hold that thing and you give it to God. And I'm not saying it's gonna be some super easy spiritual thing where you walk out of the door and it's all better but walk with a little bit more faithfulness and a little bit more trust as you leave these doors. Father God, I thank you for this passage loaded with so much power. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for strength. And so I come to you and just kind of representing all these people now in prayer. So much, so much in this world, Lord. Whatever that thing is we have, Lord, we give it to you. Right now, we trust you with it. We trust you with it, Lord. Today or tomorrow, slay that dragon, slay that monster. Lord, we acknowledge you as Lord and King of the universe. And even though the world is is living opposed to you, we acknowledge in this place here and now our allegiance to you. Keep our feet planted, keep us faithful, keep us trusting. And may we grieve, but grieve differently with a hope Lord, we love you. We love you. Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ground yourself in the past. Set your eyes on the future. There is one coming in the clouds to eradicate evil. And that's really good news to walk with today. In Jesus' name, amen.